Father, God, thank you for your grace offered to us freely in and through your Son, Jesus, which is the reason that we're all gathered here singing and making much of you this morning. As we open back up to Nehemiah this morning, Lord, my, my, my prayer is, as always, that your word would not return to you void, but that it would, as you say it will, accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. God, for those uh, who need to be born again, would the elements of the gospel message ring truer and clearer than ever this morning? For those who need encouragement, would you strengthen them and help them to persevere in faith? God, for, for those of us who need to be convicted or cut to the heart on something for the sake of continued growth in our walk with you, would you graciously do that? And all by the working of your Spirit. And as we discuss the reality which seems to be so frequent uh, to discuss from the Bible that, that challenges and difficulties are common to your followers uh, throughout all of time, would you just instill that in us uh, in ways that give us peace in our varying life circumstances, help us to remember that whatever we might be going through, it's not for nothing, and you are not absent. You are accomplishing things in our lives, even when we can't see it. And you are near to us, God, always, even to the end of the age. We love you, and I pray all of this in your worthy name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's recap. Last week uh, in Nehemiah chapter 3, we saw an awesome picture of God's people working together in unity. They were setting their personal needs aside and they were working together for the common good as they rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. And today in chapter 4, the work is going to continue, but uh, there are going to be some some bumps in the road, so to speak, okay? Uh, thankfully for me, though, there are way less difficult names to pronounce, uh, so I'm happy about that. Let's, uh, let's jump into Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Nehemiah says, Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of, of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break, it, he'll break down their stone wall. Okay, pause. So if you've been here up to this point, these are the same punks, okay, that showed up when Nehemiah first arrived back in Judah. And they're, they're back at it with their hatred and for their, their, their desire to see uh, God's people fail. This guy, Sam Ballot. Uh, is the ringleader, and he's got his boys from Samaria behind him, and he's throwing insults. Um, and then his little sidekick, Tobiah, who was a, a Jewish guy who should have known better, okay? He's like, yeah, like if a fox jumped up on it or something, it would like fall down. <laughs> I could just picture Sam Ballard looking over at him and being like, 
Weird flex, bro, but all right, you know, like, okay, all right, back to the text. Nehemiah, he begins to pray here. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger and the presence of the builders. So, so this is a tough prayer. Okay, that doesn't sound very nice, obviously. Uh, it's known as an imprecatory prayer, and it's not wrong. It's, it just flows out of a desire for, for justice and for God to act on his people's behalf here. These enemies of Israel are bad dudes, and so Nehemiah is praying for God to act and to not allow them to succeed in their smear campaign, but in, that instead that they would be uh, the ones that it actually turns out bad for. Okay, Verse 6 says, uh, So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together at half, its, at half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So this is a progress marker. They shake off the insults, and the work is coming along. And you can tell, Nehemiah is a great leader. He's, he's wise. Instead of completing you know, small sections of the wall in their entirety uh, at a time, they, they worked on getting the entire length of the wall up halfway for protection, and then they would build upward uh, with the rest from there. Verse 7. But when Samballot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites uh, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Okay, so, so Sam Ballot turns up the heat. He's now moved on from... His insults, it didn't work, to threats and a plan uh, to get this project off course and actually to, to harm God's people there in Jerusalem. And, and God's people hit a breaking point. They're tired. They're scared. They're voicing discouragement and worry that they can't finish the wall. And on top of that, their own people in their various regions of, of Judah, right? They've all come from different places in Judah. They're, they're coming to them warning them that they need to abandon the project. This is probably their family members and their neighbors, that they need to abandon the project because it's just getting too dangerous for them to continue. Verse 13, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So, so Nehemiah stands up, he gets everybody's attention, and he gives them a halftime pep talk. Okay? He, he reminds them, first of all, that God is with them, and their, their work is, should not be stopped. It's a worthy work. It's a worthy cause. It should not be given up on. And so uh, he makes sure everyone has their weapons with them as well to make sure they're all armed and ready to take uh, defensive action should that be necessary. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us 
and that God had uh, frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand, Sorry, labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side uh, while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. Uh, And in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us here or to there, and our God will fight for us. So their enemies realize they've been found out and they give up for a bit. But now uh, Nehemiah devises a counter plan to address the schemes of their enemies should they pop back up again. Uh, The Israelites all have weapons. The people on the wall are being guarded as they work uh, with both hands, and they have swords strapped to their sides. Uh, and the people bringing the building material are actually carrying you know, building material with one arm. They've got their weapon uh, in the other hand there because they're having to actually travel outside the wall to get these supplies in, right? Okay, verse 21. So we labored at the work, and uh, half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Okay, so, so obviously... Things begin to get a bit tense here in Nehemiah chapter 4. If we were to put ourselves in this scenario, I think we'd realize uh, that this was a pretty challenging situation for God's people. It's kind of like out of the frying pan and into the fire, so to speak. Uh, Out of slavery in Persia and into this uh, aggressive environment with the hostile people groups surrounding Judah. And as I said, I think there's a lot we can draw out of this and apply to our lives. But the overarching point of it all, I think, that we need to take away is that The call to Christian faithfulness is inspiring, but rigorous. Simple to say yes to, but challenging to persevere in. In the famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, by John Bunyan, he illustrates many facets of the Christian life. Allegory, by the way, is a way of writing where you tell a story in order to help explain a, var- a variety of morals or, or life lessons, a, a modern allegory you might know would be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. But anyway, in Pilgrim's Progress, the main character is a man named Christian who is going on a long journey to a faraway land which represents heaven or eternal life. And he encounters many people and faces many challenges along the way. But right in the beginning... He meets a man named Pliable, who represents people who are exactly that. Easily influenced and not on stable footing with what they believe. Let me read this to you. So this Christian begins his journey excitedly, and it says, The neighbors came out to see Christian run. And as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and others cried after him to return. Among those who did so were two who were resolved to bring him back by force. The name of one was obstinate, and the name of the other was pliable. 
Now by this time, the man had gone a good distance away from them, but they resolved to pursue him. And in a little while, they caught up with him. And then the man said, neighbors, why have you come? They answered, to persuade you to go back with us. That cannot be, said Christian, because all that I shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of what I'm seeking to enjoy. And if you'll go along with me and persevere, you shall fare as well as me. For there where I'm going is more than enough and to spare. Come along and see that my words are true. What are the things which you seek? Asked obstinate. Since you're leaving all the world to find them. Christian answered, I'm seeking an inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade, safe and reserved in heaven to be bestowed at the appointed time on those who diligently seek it. Read it if you will. It's right here in my book. Nonsense, cried Obstinate. Away with your book. Will you go back with us or not? Don't revile him, said Pliable. If what Christian says is true, then the things which he follows after are better than ours. And in fact, my heart is inclined to go with him. Then Pliable turned to Christian and asked, Do you know the way to this glorious place? Christian replied, I have been directed by a man whose name is Evangelist to travel to the narrow gate ahead of us where we shall receive instructions about the way. Come then, good Christian, let us be going, said Pliable. Then they began to travel along together. As Christian and Pliable went along towards the narrow gate, talking together, Pliable said, Tell me further, Christian, what are these glorious things and how are they to be enjoyed? Well, since you really want to know, I'll describe them to you from my book. For it was written by him who cannot lie, answered Christian. What are these glorious things of which you speak, questioned Pliable? Well, there's an eternal kingdom. An everlasting life to be given to us, for we will dwell forever, replied Christian. And what else is there, asked Pliable? We'll be given crowns of glory and garments which shine like the sun. This is wonderful, exclaimed Pliable. And what else will be there? There'll be no more crying, nor sorrow, for he who reigns over that place will wipe all tears from our eyes, responded Christian. Just hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart, said Pliable. How are these things to be enjoyed and how can we obtain them? Christian responded, The Lord, the governor of that country, has recorded in his book that if we truly are willing to have it, he will bestow it upon us freely. Well, my good friend, said Pliable, I am thrilled to hear of these things. Come, let us quicken our pace. I cannot go as fast as I would like, answered Christian, because of this burden which is on my back. And just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry swamp which was in the midst of the plain. And not paying attention, they suddenly fell into the bog. The name of the swamp was Despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being greatly smeared with filth. Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink into the mire. Then Pliable cried out, Oh no, Christian, where are we now? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. Being offended, Pliable angrily said to his companion, Is this the happiness that you have told me of? If we have such trouble at the beginning of our journey, what may we expect before our journey's end? If I can get out of here with my life, you can have your noble country without me. And with that, Pliable, after a desperate struggle, got out of the mire on that side of the swamp, which was nearest to his own house, and away he went, and Christian saw him no more. The accuracy of some of these word pictures is uncanny, isn't it? This excerpt really illustrates my point, which I believe we see not only in Nehemiah 4, but all throughout the Bible. The call to Christian faithfulness is inspiring, and it's simple to say yes to. 
The gospel is the good news of God's love and mercy for the lost and hurting and broken to be saved and redeemed, but also following the Lord is rigorous. And while it's easy to say yes to, we who have been Christians for more than a few days have found it's also challenging to persevere in. Nehemiah had a great vision in chapter 2. And the people rose up and excitedly determined to rebuild the wall of their city together. Chapter 3 says they start out strong, like Christian who starts off running. But in chapter 4, they start facing difficulty by way of strong external opposition. And it's like when Christian falls into the swamp of despond. They're like, man, this is not what we thought. We don't know if we can even keep going. Their families and their friends start trying to get them to give up and like pliable, they're thinking about it. If you've ever really tried the Christian life, I'm willing to bet you've been here. Perhaps you, you've thought, man, I, I, I want to be faithful. I want to follow Jesus, but this is tough. Maybe you have family and friends who are unsupportive of your Christian lifestyle, or maybe you've run into resistance at work with being faithful, perhaps by temptation to act like your non-believing co-workers in order to fit in. Or maybe you're just struggling with a life of commitment to the local church with making time for community and reading your Bible every day and giving generously and trying to lead your family in ways that honor God. The call to Christian faithfulness is inspiring. But the Christian life is definitely not one of increasing physical comfort and ease. That's why in Luke chapter 14, Luke says that large crowds are following Jesus. And so he turns around. Jesus turns around, says these huge crowds. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Just a quick note on Jesus' teaching style. Uh, That's not how you make a large crowd larger. That's how you thin it out. All the megachurch pastors of our day might try to pull Jesus aside and teach him some church growth strategies when he says these kind of things. But anyway, he's saying... Look, I know what you've heard about me is great. Free food and healing of sicknesses and so forth. But I'm not here to save you into an easy life. I'm here to save you from your sin and give you eternal life. And if you really want that, then it's going to take giving up everything. Taking up your cross which everyone in his day would have understood was a reference to a painful death okay, by crucifixion. And in regards to this building analogy, he's saying, think about what you're doing. Think about what you are doing. Don't try to follow me if you don't know what all that entails. Make sure you understand what will be required of you. Friends, if you want to follow Jesus you're going to have to die to yourself. To be clear, Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't follow him. He just wants the terms to be clear at the outset. What you get with Jesus 
is infinitely better and more beautiful and joy-filled and valuable than what you will lose. But in the present, you will lose something by following Jesus. You will lose something by following Jesus. And you will encounter difficulties. He wants his followers to know, don't think walking with me is a cakewalk. If you do, you'll wind up being disenchanted, like a real-life pliable. And you'll give up long before the end of the journey. Okay, so you get it, right? The Christian life is amazing because Jesus is amazing, but it's not easy. But let's get more specific. Why is it not easy? I think we see at least three things in Nehemiah 4 that shed light on that. And so let's address them. The first thing that happens in this chapter is these men who have uh, set themselves up as enemies of God and his people, uh, they don't want to see them succeed. Okay? They don't want to see them succeed. They, they start jeering. That is, rudely mocking the Israelites, making fun of their project, saying it's going to fail and that their wall is going to be too weak to protect them, and and so on. And so the first thing this shows us about the rigor and the challenges of living a faithful Christian life is that our message seems foolish. Yes, our message seems foolish. To people in a dying world, ensnared in the fleshly enjoyment of their own sin, the Apostle Paul just says it straight up. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That is, the message of repent and follow Jesus, it sounds stupid to sinners who are blinded by the deceitfulness of their sin. That word, repent, sounds like crazy religious fanaticism to them, okay? And I say this all the time because I think it's relevant to us as Christians. We live in a world where it is becoming increasingly culturally unacceptable to ever tell anyone that they are wrong. Like our society is trying to pass laws that say you can't tell people that you disagree with them on the grounds of Scripture. In some other parts of the world, the Christian gospel is labeled as extremism. And it's punishable by law to evangelize. And if you can't see that coming in the U.S., well then you're not listening to the national discussions in our public square very closely. But... Nevertheless, the message that we are called to proclaim as Christians is one that calls sinners to repentance. Or in other words, we are instructed by our Lord Jesus to graciously call sinners to admit, okay, to admit that living their life with their own best judgment has not worked out all that great for them but that actually it's left them feeling unfulfilled, broken, or both. To say it another way, we're called to lovingly tell sinners that they've gone about their life all wrong. 
And in love, we don't stop there. Okay, We don't stop there. We're called to tell them about the good news of a better way. A better way. The better way is to look to the God who made them and to ask Him for the help that only He could give and that He has given in giving us His Son, Jesus. You see, Jesus is the perfect means of help for the predicament that we as sinners find ourselves in. He lived the perfect life that we never could have. And then he offers to give us the credit for it. Wow. He lived the perfect life that we never could have lived and offers to give us the credit for it by grace through faith. Not to mention, he also died the death that our sin deserved on the cross so that we can be free from God's punishment. That's good news. But also... It's not just about eternity, it's about right now. He also redeems us. He makes us new and he teaches us to increasingly live as he did in a way that glorifies God as our heavenly father. Okay, that's the gospel, by the way. And as Christians, while these truths are infinitely beautiful and precious to us, to the majority of the rest of the world, they sound foolish. They sound foolish, largely because of pride, because of human pride. Initially, I think you know this to be true, initially, no one wants to admit that maybe deep down, if they're really honest, they have no idea what their life is actually about and that they need outside guidance in order to figure that out. (laughs) We all need that, don't we? We all need that. As Christians, we know that we all needed someone to call us out on our mess and to call us to give up on our pride and to repent and to trust Jesus. And while it, it may sound like folly to the world, we have to be unashamed to proclaim it, because we know that for those who have ears to hear, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Amen? But let's be honest with each other, okay? Can we do that? That's really hard, I know. Let's let's be honest. Is this easy? (laughs) Is this easy? Who in this room finds personal evangelism easy? No one, not a hand, because it's not. It's rigorous. It's simple to say yes to the gospel for ourselves, but it's challenging to live a life of sharing it with others who you know may look at you like you are a crazy person. But look right at me. That's our calling, church. That's our calling. Count the cost. That's our calling. To take the gospel to a world that is perishing in an attempt to mercifully extend the same opportunity that we have received. The opportunity to receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life 
with Christ. Okay, that's the first rigor of faithful living. Our message seems foolish. The second rigorous quality of Christian faithfulness really flows right out of this one. Not only is our, does our message seem foolish, but our mission is hard work. Our mission is hard work. Advance the gospel by word and deed. So not only are we called to tell people the gospel, we're called to live it out. (laughs) We're called to live it out. We're called to let the grace of God infuse every aspect of our lives. Anybody else find that extremely challenging? Just me? Okay. Yeah, it's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Should I raise my hand? All right, yeah, you can raise it. All right, Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This makes me think about that awful quote that for years was mistakenly attributed to St. Francis. Sorry, St. Francis. <laughs> Preach the gospel at all times. And use words when necessary. To be clear, the reason that's such an awful saying is because, I mean, can we be honest here? (laughs) It's impossible to tell someone the gospel without words. You can't tell somebody the gospel without using words. But the point of the expression does have some truth to it. Uh, If you want to be effective at sharing the gospel... You can't only use words. You can't only use words. You have to use your life too. Because if the gospel has not changed your life for the better, then why would anyone be compelled to believe it from you? Like if you try to evangelize your coworkers, for instance, but you're still actively sinning in the same ways that they are, you're getting drunk after work, You're talking about crude and appropriate things at work. You're having a nasty, mean-spirited attitude with people every day during work or whatever. Is that going to compel anyone to hear about and believe in Jesus from you? No. No, it's not. Right? It's not going to do it. Because we're called to be different. We're called to be holy. We're called, in word and deed, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So with food and drink and other substances, we're called to be people who partake only of what God says is good for us and to do so in moderation so as to enjoy it, not abuse it. In regards to what we talk about and how we talk, we're called to only use speech that is pure and that builds people up because that's what we believe to be morally acceptable and pleasing to God. In regards to our attitudes, we're called to be joyful, kind, humble people who are not easily upset or offended because we know how gracious and kind the Lord has been to us. 
In regards to our families, we're called to be men and women who honor our wives or or husbands respectively because marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. With our kids, we're called to raise them very intentionally in grace and truth, teaching them about who God is and how they can relate to him from a very young age. In regards to our finances and and our possessions, we're called to be frugal and generous, thankful for what we have and willing to share with the church and with those in need. In regards to how we spend our time, we're called to not be lazy or aimless, but to be redeeming the time that we have, spending it with the people of God, and striving to be responsible and productive for the sake of God's kingdom. So in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see that the work that Israel is called to is hard. It's hard. They get exhausted. They come to a place of wanting to throw in the towel because of how challenging it is. Obviously, they don't do that. Because Nehemiah calls them to persevere. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we can experience the same thing as we strive to do the work of our mission as New Testament believers and conform every aspect of our lives in both word and deed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. It's not easy work. It's rigorous We can grow weary, and so we need our brothers and sisters to encourage us and strengthen us and to be reminded often of why we're doing it. More on that shortly, but before we get there, we have to discuss the final aspect from our text of why the life of faithfulness for a Christian is so challenging. Our message seems foolish, our mission is hard, and on on top of it all, okay, our adversaries abound. Our adversaries abound. In Nehemiah 4, the enemies of God's people start to literally come at them from all directions and band together in order to try to thwart the good work that they're striving to do. And the same is true for us as Christians today. The world, the flesh, and the devil are a cohort of adversaries that all oppose our gospel work together as Christians. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul starts out talking about the reality of our lives before Christ. And listen to what he says. He says, And you were dead in the, tres- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see, this adversarial trifecta, enumerated in this text. First of all, the world is against us. Okay? The world's against us. We've already talked about, about that, so I'm not going to do it in great depth again. But the current of our culture, with its individualistic, atheistic, sexually perverse values and objectives, it is aggressively anti-gospel. Okay. The culture of the world, the current of the world, is aggressively anti-gospel. Christ says, die to yourself and serve others. The world says, you do you, boo. Forget about others. Christ says, you were created to love God and honor God. The world says, you don't need God. You can be your own God, fam. Christ says, 
Sex is a good gift to be enjoyed inside a covenant commitment between husband and wife. The world says, if it feels good, do it. You deserve to make sex all about you and your personal pleasure, however weird or unnatural it may be. Get after it. So the world is diametrically opposed to our life as followers of Jesus. Right? But we have to be honest. I'm saying that a lot. Y'all being honest? We got to be honest. It's not just the world that's against us. The world actually plays on our own sinful flesh, doesn't it? Our own desires often get twisted and tempt us to rebel against God. And so as Christians, we confess. We don't just have enemies outside of ourselves. We have an enemy within as well. Okay? We have hearts that are deceptive. They're selfish. And that we constantly have to be assessing and guarding for bad motives and wicked desires. Like little foxes that sneak in and threaten to spoil the vineyard. We have our own sinful heart tendencies that spring up out of our flesh. And that must be constantly eradicated. Okay. And then, as you know, we also have the devil, who's the instigator of it all. He's the prince of the power of the air. And though he's a defeated foe and Christ has triumphed over him, his plan to destroy humanity, he's still active in the world. He's still active, trying to mislead and wreak havoc and destruction in people's lives until the bitter end when Jesus returns to crush him finally and fully. But in the meantime, he's alive and he's prowling around seeking to lead astray even Christians if possible. So, now that you're on the brink of utter despair about the difficulty of the Christian life with our message seeming foolish, our mission being hard work, and our adversaries abounding, let me transition to a word that you've never been so happy to hear. But. A life of Christian faithfulness is rigorous and challenging, but. What we see from Nehemiah's valiant example is that we can prayerfully fight and keep building without fear for our future and for our families. Okay. In the midst of all the difficulty that's piling up for Israel all at once, Nehemiah says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. As you can imagine, this is somewhat of an emotional appeal. He's telling them, don't forget why we're doing what we're doing. It's for our families and our futures and God is with us. And so I say the same thing to you today, church. Maybe you've just gone through a season that has been hard on your faith and you're tired. And now you're tempted to slow your pace and just take it easy and let up because it feels too challenging to keep pressing on. But brother or sister, don't forget what your faith is all about. Don't forget what your faith is all about. 
Your faith is not just a hobby that you can pack up in a box in the garage and pick it back up later. Or a subscription service that you can cancel to save money and resubscribe later. Your faith in Christ is your living hope of an eternal future with God. And it is worth fighting for. And as Nehemiah reminds Israel, it's not even just about you. Don't forget that. It's not just about you. Your faith is about your legacy and the eternity of your children and all the people that you love. If you give up, what happens to them? How will their eternities be affected by your unwillingness and your weakness and your not being strong enough to persevere? How will other people be affected by that? The stakes could not be higher. The stakes could not be higher. Don't give up. Don't give up. If you need someone to lean on, lean on us. Lean on your church family. Don't throw in the towel. Keep going. Keep building. Keep praying. And keep fighting. Not only is it worth it, but what you're experiencing is normal. It's normal. Faith is often referred to as a fight. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, speaking of temptations to sin, he says, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And in Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace and in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so I say to you, a life of striving for Christian faithfulness is rigorous And it is challenging to persevere in. But we can prayerfully fight and keep building without fear for our future and for our families. Because this is amazing. You ready for this? Our victory is guaranteed by the God 
who fights for his people. (laughs) Our victory is guaranteed by the God who fights for his people. In verse 20 of Nehemiah 4, he says, Indeed, the work is great, but our God will fight for us. What stronger motivation to persevere could there be than this? Nehemiah doesn't tell his people to suck it up and do better. He doesn't give them a message of self-help. He reminds them of what God has said to his people from the very beginning. This task is too hard for you. This task is too hard for you. But it's not too hard for me. And I'm going to be with you to strengthen you, to uphold you, and to fight this battle for you and win. That doesn't mean we throw our hands up and do nothing. Right? We still have a responsibility to be ready to fight. But in our preparedness, in our inevitable fighting for faith, God is going to be fighting in and through us and making it so no matter who, no matter who the adversary that's opposing us, he will see to it that they do not ultimately defeat us. They do not ultimately defeat us, but that along with our victorious, resurrected Savior King who, came, who overcame the world and dealt the knockout blow to death itself, we too, as his covenant people, will conquer sin and death and the devil because he will fight for us. He will fight for us. And thus, 1 Corinthians 15 ends by saying this, thanks be to God. (laughs) Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What a great comfort that is. (laughs) What a great comfort that is. Friends, the Christian life faithfully lived is not for the faint of heart. The Christian life faithfully lived is not for the faint of heart. Pliable people need not apply. But for those of us who have counted the cost and have seen Jesus, though seriously challenging, is Jesus challenging? (laughs) Who've seen Jesus, though seriously challenging, to be good, gracious, and worthy of all our worship. We can always take comfort in knowing that while our message may seem foolish, Our mission may be hard work and our adversaries may abound. We can prayerfully fight and keep building his kingdom, assured that our labor is not in vain because the Lord himself is fighting for us and he will ensure that we come out victorious with him in the end. So keep fighting, church. (laughs) Keep fighting for our future and for our families. Let's remember that Christ is with us so that we don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you, as always, 
for your amazing, relevant, inerrant, sufficient word. God, we need your word. We need to be going to your word, drinking up your word, feasting on your word. Because, Father, without your word, we're lost. We need these categories. We need to be reminded that something's not going wrong with our Christian life because it's hard. God, there are false teachers everywhere in our culture that are telling us that, that if we follow you, Jesus, that everything's going to be easy and everything's going to fall in place and it's going to be great this side of eternity. And that is not what your word says. It says it's going to be hard. but that you're good and you've overcome the world and you are with us and you're better than the world. You're with us to the end of the age, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this chapter, Nehemiah 4. Pray that we would meditate on it and reapply it to ourselves. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.